Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. And in today's episode, we are joined by Joe Jakowski, as usual. Uh, the semester has ended, and me and Joe catch up. We kind of pick up right where we left off with the Thanksgiving episode we had recorded. And we basically start the discussion around what happened toward the end of the semester, and then just catching up there. And then from at that point, we dive deep into a discussion into behavioral psychology because Joe was actually taking class on it, and he was reading The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, and we kind of stay really on topic around this concept, and we're kind of circling around many concepts, connecting the dots, basically, and it wound up being a really fun conversation, and Joe also has posted his article on... Um, relationships and behavioral psychology or evolutionary re reasoning for relationships and how we build them and he wrote that for the behavioral psychology class there's a link in the description if you guys are interested in it it's pretty cool uh i really find this stuff interesting and to kind of dive deep in these stuff we really like joe uh go off on a tangent and we were well lubricated with alcohol as a warning probably part of the reason why we got so deep in the weeds and the scientific side of the uh, behavioral psych stuff here but yeah it was a lot of fun and i hope you guys enjoy this one because i think it's one of our better ones uh at least on the science side of things so for the with that everybody please enjoy this conversation with joe jakowski uh, three two one beauty bam hey oh, joe hello you're back again I am back. Semester's over. It is. How does it feel? That first that of all, heavy weight. <laughs> and by heavy weight, I mean like that buzzing annoyance. You're you just know? like in the back of your head. You're just like, why do I have to always do something? It's like, close this which I don't mind, right? I don't mind actually having a bunch of shit to do and constantly having to do it. Right. What's annoying is that they're not. How'd you say? Segregated? They're not ordered properly? Yeah. It's just like you have all these times scattered throughout a week, and you just gotta mm -hmm. do shit. And worse than that, worse than that, is that I had at least one professor who was disorganized. Oh, like, the, the organization of his lectures didn't make any fucking sense. Really? Yeah, it was... What class was that one for? Cognition. Oh, Jesus. Which is a shame, because yeah. <laughs> I've gotten a lot of really, really positive um, feedback on previous professors that have done that course mm -hmm. that you have these people that have, or at least a professor that has done it that has really blown the minds of the people that have done it yeah because in part because he would connect everything in the class to consciousness Ooh. and how it plays into the way we think about it except this professor didn't do any of that it was like a bunch of facts floating in midair uh. unconnected just here's a thing here's a thing here's a thing so you had nothing to like connect it back to, right? And the like... organization wouldn't make any sense. Like, even in even in his study guides, the organization Same way? made no sense because I would look at it and it'd basically be in order of the way they did the lecture, and it'd be something like, "Uh, here's something about vision, blah 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 blah, bunch of bullshit." Oh, is that the one I helped Half you a page with? Like, study. Here's more. Yeah. The study guide where it's just like a whole bunch of disjointed terms. Yeah, and, and then he would just go back to. Here's another thing about vision. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? What what is the takeaway from any any single piece of information that you're giving me right now? God, that's frustrating. It's really annoying. Because it's like, how do you even internalize any of that? Like, what's gonna stick? Not much. Yeah, I didn't do so hot. Right? Like, I mean, not even just from a grade standpoint, just from like a beyond the class standpoint. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm gonna forget almost all that class. <laughs> like eighty percent of it. <laughs> because there's nothing there. There's nothing because it's so disorganized. There's, there's no, no meat. And he this is what blows my fucking mind about that class. Is that he's teaching cognition and learning is a portion of cognition. So he knows the fucking facts, right? He knows oh. that if you paid any fucking attention, you would realize that the way that you learn something is by connecting it to as many things as possible, right? So you build a context. Oh my. You build a story around the fact, and that's when you remember it. 
You Whoa. self-reference it. You have you tell a story about how this thing exists, why it exists, and why it relates to you, and then the person's gonna fucking remember it. God, that's so, so guess what? This motherfucker. He did everything not to do. It's like you know. <laughs> you fucking know. <laughs> you don't have an excuse. You're a God professor. Damn it. That's so that's so frustrating to me. Like, of all professors that should know how to teach properly, it should have been that guy. Yeah. Right? You think? God, that's so freaking garbage. It's like hot trash. It's like. And so I. F- well, continue. Like it, like it brings me to a tangent of like, you know why? Because I was trying to think of like, I forget where it was a podcast I was into with the it's Kevin Rose is the podcast and he was talking to um, I forget his name but he's like a memory expert. And so he, he's, like, done those, like, memory challenges where you have to, like, remember really ridiculously long words and, like, cool. as little time as possible or something oh, like yeah. that. crazy shit. The, the, <clears throat> the level to which people are able to remember is fucking insane. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Insane. So he kind of gave, like, tips, like, how to remember things mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And he talked about how, basically, he's like, so right now, if you guys are listening to this podcast and you're, like, and you are, like, working out or doing something while you're listening to this, you have a higher likelihood of remembering what we talked about because you're engaging your brain in multiple ways mm-hmm. by activating your motor cortex and doing an active activity and stuff like that. That backs up my hypothesis. Exactly. It, you're, you're, you're connecting context. Yes. Context is what memory is. And so that kind of like connects back to me because I'm you know always doing stuff when I listen to podcasts. Maybe I'm not like 100% focused on the podcast. But it, like I realize how much I actually remember without realizing that I like did work doing that, mm-hmm. you know. And that's kind of like the idea of like the more you listen to, the more you just absorb. Just when I would even... listen to Peterson's podcast, when I was like in my prime of obsession with the whole yeah, like his first union, stuff with with the union stuff in particular, right. I would listen to it at the gym all the time. And my old gym journal, the notebook that I would keep track yeah. of. All of the lifts that I was uh, doing at the time, and so that I could know when to improve or when to increase the amount of weight that I was using. Yeah. And the back of it is filled with little notes that I would take. From Jung? Oh, here's this thing. Oh, okay, so that works. How's this argument play out? This, this, this. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Right? So that's, <laughs> that's I would totally agree yeah, with that. But it's... I'm a little confused in part because, and I don't understand this, so I don't expect you to answer it exactly. Yeah, right. But I'm a little confused about the fact that. Well, context is necessary for memory, and that doing these things in tandem with something you want to learn creates that context. Why is it that we can't multitask? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I don't know. You would maybe it's because it's a performative action instead of a learning thing. That you're not learning to do something. That instead you're performing multiple things you already know. So yeah, maybe it's possible. Like qualitatively different. In right. I think. I think like. I think the fact that like, you can listen to a podcast, but it doesn't, like, interrupt something you do. Like, mm-hmm. if it's something simple, right? Like, yeah. like, if it doesn't take... So, the way I describe it is, like, a cognitive load kind of thing. Like, if, if I'm just doing, like, mundane, like, data entry or something that doesn't take a lot of interest right. or, you know, thought process behind yeah, it, yeah. I can listen to a podcast all day, every day. But if I need to use my own brain power and, like, focus on something and make sure it's, like, working or, or like, you know, doing my own thing and, like, have to use my brain, like, like concentration on something, then I can't listen to a podcast because mm-hmm. then I'm just, like, I'm not even going to pay. Like, I'm just going to not listen to the context of what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's better for me to listen to music that it doesn't it. matter if, uh, you know, that right. kind of thing. So you have a... How would you say? Limited bandwidth, I guess you'd call it. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least for contextual p- perspective. I almost wonder if it's the amount of sheer sensory information that's coming in. So there, let me do a little here. We learned something today. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple different types of stimulus and ways that you perceive the world, right? So right. It's, there's a distal proximal mm-hmm. and there's the distal stimulus, proximal stimulus, and uh, precept. Mm-hmm. The distal stimulus is the thing in itself, right? So this is something analogous in some sense to Kantian um, pneumonum. Pneumonum? Which is basically the world in itself, right? The material Mm. that is producing the thing that you're going to see. So it's the chair in itself. The physical world, right? It is the chair. The material that makes up that chair, the atoms, the whatever. And how that interacts with the world so that you can see it. The proximal stimulus is the thing that's being projected to you. Okay? Oh, okay. So it's not exactly how you see it. The interpretation by your eyes, I guess right. you'd call that. So, for example, 
think of a person standing Mm -hmm. and think of the angles of the light, right? So if it's bouncing into your eyes, the highest thing is going to bounce off that, the top of their head and then shoot downward Mm -hmm. because the light's coming from above, bang, right? then shoots downward, maybe whatever degree angle. To whatever angle in your eyes. So it's low. Yeah. But the feet are getting light coming from above, and they have to shoot in? up. No. They have to shoot up into the tops of your eyes so that the image is flipped. It's upside down yeah, right. when it hits your retina. So that upside down image that exists on your retina is the proximal stimulus. So it's not that you're actually perceiving hmm. that thing. It's that it's some intermediary between the distal and the precept. And what the precept is, is the, the end product. It's that your brain is, has flipped that image back right side up. To the right orientation or whatever. Exactly. Hmm. And your brain will do this. So if you take goggles that will flip things upside down in your imagery. It'll do it automatically, right? Right. It'll Over pre- time, it'll correct. It'll yeah. self-correct. Well, I mean, we kind of do this on a daily basis. I do now where I wear like the, uh, or I have the night mode turned on to my phone. Uh-huh. Where the orange light of the the screen turns on at night, right? So when you first start doing that, you're like you notice the shift, right? The color looks off to you for whatever reason, you know. Yeah, yeah. But then over time, maybe in probably like three days, I think is probably the the most time it needs for your eyes to adjust. If you just leave it on and let it do that automatically for you, by the you know that third day, it doesn't even, you don't even notice the shift mm-hmm. in color. And I think that's. It's kind of like the the adaptive power of like the sub. I don't even know. Would you even call it subconscious? What, like, I mean, what, it is subconscious work, because, in part, because it's that? it's it, anything in my mind that's analogous to the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So it's these things that operate without your without your conscious will, right? Yeah, right. These things that you're unaware of that they can happen in the background. It's a program running yeah, in the background. Exactly. Okay. Anything that's like that, that's your unconscious. So that reminded me. So remember, actually, I think it was the Thanksgiving podcast. We talked about. Why, what is HRV, mm-hmm. the heart rate variability that measured by my wearables? Right, right, right. And I couldn't really describe it well enough for you to understand it. Right. So it's part of that HR, it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system where it just runs in the background and it just changes due to the stressors that you put on your body. Hmm. So the more stress, so like the last few days I've been just going crazy with workouts and stuff. So my recovery has just been just tanked. Hey, we're drinking, so you're right. fucked. And so it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, it'll probably be just as low as it was this morning. And so it's kind of like your body signaling to you subconsciously that, hey, fucker, you know, I need a break. Yeah. Right? But it's not something that we can tell just by waking up in the morning and being like, my HRV is low today. Right. It's not something you read off a piece of paper. Yes. It's something that you need to measure via technology to be able to understand. Yeah. Because there's some, and there's some like fancy math that goes into like reading it. And I can, so I'm in the process of, so this is kind of recapping certain things that we were talking about before, but I'm in the process of creating that article that I told you about for my quality, um, class. Mm -hmm. So I wrote the article and I got, I have the bare bones skeleton of it, but after I turned it in, I was like, fuck, I can make this so much better. And so I'm going to make, (laughs) so I'm going to make it better and I'm going to, and I'm going to put it up on the website. Uh, to be, it's still gonna have the same title and everything. It's just gonna have just way more data and way more in- information linking back and forth to to give people a more encompassing picture about how to prioritize daily recovery. Okay. In general, and so there's an article I found with the company called Aura Ring who makes this ring that has a, a thing on their website where it's like if you want to learn about HRV, click here, and so it really goes into the math and it shows a graph of how they measure it basically. And so it gives like a broad overview okay, of how so they... you can kind of get a sense of yeah, the so, science. Yeah, so I'm going to link, link back to that for everybody and be able to say... See if you can, and I bet you have this with NIU, mm-hmm. um, which is that if you, you... Do you have a student email? Yeah, I do. Okay, so you can use this for any student that is out there. You can use your student email generally to do this at any public institute, is that they'll have subscriptions to uh, academic journals. Yeah, journals, right. I would look up stuff on HRV. And see yeah, I got to see because I... Play with the science, why not? Yeah, I didn't run into a whole bunch with HRV, but again, to, to reiterate one of the articles that I found with Whoop, who's the other wearable that I used, they had an article or a study they did with collegiate athletes. I want to say it was, it was over a 1,000. I'm not going to... That's a big the, sample size, yeah. Yeah, so it was all collegiate athletes from, like, six different institutions, all big Big Ten-type schools. Okay. They didn't say which schools exactly, but basically they, they did, like, a survey, and they had all of their, you know, data for recovery and things like that, 
and they kind of aggregated the data, and then they did, um, it was, like, probable cause for, like, outliers or, like, false positives or things like that. So, like, basically looking at the data and then saying, okay, when do these people drink? When do they not drink? You know, how often they do drink? What, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And then they look into their daily routine to f- figure out things that would cause aberrant data, right? Because you're looking at people's you're trying to lifestyle. For all the variables. Basically, yeah. Trying to be as scientific about something when they don't, when basically this data was just collected raw. Like, it was just, here's collegiate athletes. We have their data. Let's try to aggregate and try to tell us something from it, right? They weren't saying, they weren't doing like a, like a study, like how they do with food studies, where they say, okay, you, in the last six months, how much have you been eating of this kind of whatever? You know, mm-hmm. bullshit, right? <laughs> well, not necessarily, but it depends on how It's not very good, or it's not very accurate, because people are very... It's tough, because it's all correl- Yeah, correlative. Um, I'm saying bullshit because it's, I'm partially biased from recent events with <laughs> how people interpret data and things like that when it comes to those kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I forget the name of those studies, like food surveys or whatever. Well, those are a little weird, but right. I, I don't want to take us off track. So. Yeah, anyways. So long story short, that that study, basically, they looked, they correlated as much as they could, and, and the f- most clear-cut thing they could say from that data set was that drinking can have a negative impact on your overall recovery, which is the the how much your body recovers from previous day strain. Mm-hmm. And cardiovascular load is equals what is equal strain, is lingers for up to five days. So there's like a oh my god there's a so there's a it's an exponential decline graph. So it's like from the first so, so the first day after drinking or night after drinking, you're like a seventy percent chance of having impaired athletic performance. And then from there on, it drops to like 33%, then like 25 and then 12, 12, 12. I mean, that's not too surprising. Right. Essentially, I mean, what alcohol is doing is poisoning yourself to the point where right. you feel good. <laughs> right. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's it's intuitive. But that's what, that, I mean, that's what good science tells you, right? Because yeah. if, if you're able to then start cataloging data, not to prove what you're, what the, the anecdotal evidence says, where you can start saying, okay, these things are going to have negative impact on my life, period. Mm-hmm. Right and or and just be kind of aware of okay these are the choices I'm making I need to be aware of the consequences of those things I think that's part that I think that's what makes more sense from a average person side of things for me at least that's why that's why I'm deciding to write it because like I'm not an elite athlete you know and I, I just think it's I just think it's interesting for me to be to be able to correlate then the data from both of these wearables at the same time mm-hmm. to see what the message is like if they're like you know in sync in any way or like what does one say versus another vice versa right you know I just think it's, a, it's, it's pretty interesting it's an experiment on myself which you know anecdotal evidence is still anecdotal but a lot of times anecdotal evidence has truth that can then be multiplied you know and if enough <laughs> well I mean that's so hmm where do we go from here right uh, hmm where do we how do we get on this tangent you just reminded me about how definitions and stuff. So I was reiterating stuff we had talked about previously that I couldn't answer. Right, because we were, we were, like, we were off like the psychology stuff with parasympathetic nervous system. Nervous system that went off on this. Yeah, and I just tangented it hard. <laughs> as a remind, is a reminder point. Yeah, I mean to bring it back to, I guess self improvement in some sense and some yeah. understanding of the objective world, the way things go. I mean, we can play with. Let's play with the science, right? right? So, for one, anecdotal evidence is essentially useless. Right. However... Because it's N equals 1. Enough... <laughs> enough anecdotal... Ev- enough anecdotal evidence equals a sample size. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> if they do well enough, then it's okay. And this is how we figure out any scientific truths, right? Right. We don't, we don't have objective truth. What we have is truth by approximation that we have the mm-hmm. we have enough information that corroborates the evidence that we've continued to pile up right and then as we continue to do that we think we hone in hone in hone in hone in on okay. the thing that it's we like, right our mm-hmm. cone of representative error shrinks and shrinks yeah and that that's how we get to the point where we can basically say okay that's true yeah now, that 
is not a absolute, right? No, it's always moving, right? Because it's... reality is a dynamic <coughs> environment, and that <clears throat> that we could have a theory of gravity. Yeah, and that theory of gravity, though it holds up ninety nine point nine nine repeating points of the time, right? It could end up being that it's only that we have, as a species, existed within a time period in which it would promote that theory of gravity. Yeah. So that perhaps you can imagine that there's fluctuating elements of gravity. I mean, this is hypothetical, right? right yeah. I, I'm using this as an example. I'm making yeah, a story. Yeah, you're thought experimenting this here. Is total, <laughs> this could be totally bullshit. Don't take this as science. Um, but it could be that, sci- that, that within the time in which we have scientifically studied how gravity works has only existed within a small segment yeah. of the life cycle of gravity. Yeah. Right, so that it could fluctuate and maybe things fall apart. The perception of these things. And in 100,000 years, when we're all long dead, suddenly gravity pushes the other direction. Right. right? I mean, that. there's no reason to believe that would ever happen. Yeah. But, but the point is that how we determine truth is an approximation within a time period. Yeah, and then that's interesting. So, I mean, that's I mean, it's just a nice way to dissect the way that the scientific method works. Right. I mean, I, th- I think that makes sense too. Like, because we're kind of at a forefronty weird way of like with quantum physics and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and quantum mechanics is where most people who are used to normal physics, right, with like you saying the law of gravity, as soon as you start getting into the quantum world, everything gets all squirrely, and a lot of people get lost because it's just. So are outside of the realm of normal pattern recognition and things like that. It just doesn't make sense with the way that we perceive the world, right? And I mean, that's how mathematics develop, right? So, yeah. So the reason that you have Newtonian mathematics and you have Einsteinian mathematics yeah. and quantum mathematics yep. is that because the previous form of mathematics doesn't work with what we realize. Yeah. It doesn't that fit we the discover, theory. <laughs> right, we discover new things. It doesn't fit with the theory, so we have to make adjustments. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't... <clears throat> And this is something that we said of evolution also, is that we don't throw out the old form. Yeah. Because the old form got you far enough. Yeah. Got you far enough to realize that there's a problem with that form. And then allows you to then make course corrections. Yeah. And those course corrections end up being a whole new theory. So you build on top. Yeah, it's a conservative cause... mimetic process. Mm. Ooh. Right. So you use the word. <laughs> right. Specifically. And that, that's technically correct, right? So you have a genetic process where the gene is the unit of information transformation, right? Mm-hmm. That you want to transfer that from one generation to the next. And the gene is basically like the bit. Oh. Okay. So what a meme is is a bit of information within a culture and that what theories are are an aggregate of multiple bits but there it's a conservative process so that you have you transfer these bits that are functional while disregarding the ones that are not huh where is this theory from uh dawkins really dawkins is the one that came up with the so idea this is from the selfish gene yeah, it's from the selfish gene, which is really interesting because he undercuts his whole anti, um, 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 what do you call it, the new atheism movement, right, right? yeah. So this whole anti-religious idea, yeah. complete, he came up with the meme and doesn't understand that the meme justifies religion, which is the union point, which is that... Elaborate, just keep going. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, which is keep, that basically... So, the, for those who don't understand, because... So, you take a meme, and, and for those of you who don't know what a meme is... Yeah, because they're going to think of game, the cultural... Right, thing. they're going to think of the idea of the meme on the internet, but that's right. actually a really good example, right? Because it acts like you would expect a meme, technically, to yeah. act, because you have these uh, little... You have a picture with a joke. Yeah. With a certain expression. And because you understand that expression, you understand the joke that comes with it. Cultural context, basically. And then it, it explodes out into the culture and then dissipates. That's how genes act. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you have a certain gene that's functional for a certain amount of time, and maybe it acts in a certain way, but then that species dies off. It can't, it can't keep up with the environment. But every so often, you have a meme or a gene that is so functional that it can can be actually perpetuated over a long amount of time. 
Mm-hmm. So you could think of Facebook as something like it. Right, com- that's, that's exactly right. what I, That's the, if you saw my facial expression, my face just was like, it just connected all the dots and it was like, oh. But you could think of Facebook <laughs> as something like a, a well, you, functional meme. Right, if you think of everything in our society in the last 20 years is a function of this. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Not even over the last 20 years. Less than that. Since humanity became conscious, we switched. Yeah, I guess on the time scale, right? We switched mm-hmm. into the mimetic level. Because culture can evolve faster than our biology can. Right. Yeah, That's from like why. an idea, like a philosophical, from a technological... Because I can transmit that information to you, person to person, faster than we can die, or have children, then die, right. then they have children, then they die, then they have children, they die. Right, because we're, like, we're working on like, what, on average 80 years life cycles? So we, <laughs> yes. We can... Our mimetic... The mimetic level... Is the cultural level, it's right. a societal level, sociological. Yeah, right? it's the expansion of ideas fundamentally into the broader human genome. Wow! So that we have this point where everything in our culture is built on a conservative process. Right now, yeah. it's sped up compared to the genes. Right? Oh yeah, it's, it's like a lot, it's highly lot accelerated, <laughs> but it's still conservative relatively, right? So, what you have to understand, and this is why Dawkins has it wrong, is that you need to understand that anything that has lasted through a culture for a long time probably has a function. Yeah. And that religion... Yeah, it serves a purpose and for some reason. serves a purpose for survival and reproduction. hmm So, religion, because it's lasted longer than any other... It's the mimetic it, institution. It, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's probably the oldest institution, quote, unquote, right? If you wanted to call it institution. Uh-huh. <laughs> or ideology or whatever label you want to slap They're on. both memes. Right. <laughs> is, that, is that those exist for that function, right? Yeah. So Dawkins thinks that they're essentially just mind viruses that haven't gone away. But he, he's unwilling to recognize the fact that if it survives... I mean, a virus doesn't... Give it. I think the I, the virus idea is undercutting it. it. It's not taking it seriously. Yeah, it's like it's like saying, oh, psh, it's, it just needs to be eradicated. Viruses right? exist or for their own to... benefit, right? Right. Which is, I, you can maybe you can make an argument with that, and I don't understand his argument well enough to say that it's totally wrong, right? So I don't want to go to that point, but it, it, to me, it feels hand wavy. It is. It, yes. <laughs> I I think so because. What it really, really looks like to me is that religious institutions act as a means of expanding the tribal framework outside of race. Yeah, it encompasses. It can. What to me, what I've, what I would describe it as would be the the encompassing of us. You know, the us versus them. Yeah. You know, tribalism. Me, what's that old saying? Me, my brother against my cousin. Me, my brother, my cousin against the stranger. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that, where it's like you're you're trying to reference same, same, different, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Where you're, there's where you're an just... evolutionary example. Okay, <laughs> this is really cool. So I get to get to, I get to go into uh, behavioral neuroscience. So there's a, and Dawkins again, who talks about the nature of altruism within species. Yeah. So there's a. Let's say I have a sibling. We have one half relatedness. Right. So we have one half genetic relatedness. And it's the same for the parent, right? Yeah. Because there's a mom and there's a dad. They both contribute half. Mm-hmm. And that half goes into the child. As a sibling, I have half too, right? So I have my mom and my dad's thing and whatever. And the half, their, their weird mixture. Right. That's half of me. And it's also uni- a half It's uniquely me. yours, though. It's, unless you're twins, right? Oh, yeah. That's an interesting thing. Twins. Which, is which, I, which we can put off to the side yeah. because I'm not going to address it. But, um, but the reason that altruism can evolve is because if genes are trying to perpetuate themselves and get paired with genes that allow you to be altruistic, mm-hmm. then you're more likely to increase the proper proposition, the perpetuation, excuse me, of those genes. So think of it this way. You have a sibling. Yep. And you may... Let's say you have two siblings, okay? Mm-hmm. You have two siblings. And you defend them against some predator, and you die. Yeah. That's altruistic, right? You sacrifice yourself for those two siblings. Yeah, one for the many. Except, <laughs> if you look at it from a genetic level, you've sacrificed a half for a whole. Oh. So if you allow that strategy to play out, you have altruism come into the system. 
because the genes are looking in some sense out for themselves. Yeah. And they are reinforced by the altruism gene. So you have the the genetic relatedness, uh-huh. R. I think it's, oh, God, R equals one-fourth. I can't remember. There's an equation for this. Oh, really? Yeah, you can just track it. It's really easy. Whoa. Um, that you have the relatedness of the people that you have, and the more related you are, the more likely you are to produce altruistic behavior. Okay, so... Whoa. <laughs> let me give you an example of that, okay? So, in humans, for example, there's the oh, stepfather, I think, effect, or evil stepmother effect. I can't remember exactly what it's called. What is the step-parent step of The point sort? is that if you track biological parents, if you track biological parents that are separated, mm-hmm. you track non-biological parents, so a biological parent with a step-parent, that it continuously decreases the amount of resources you're willing to give that child, specifically in college, right? So that... No, there's extenuating Well, that makes situation. sense. There's extenuating circumstances, but it's just... Right, I mean, it's a general, general rule. But as a general rule, what you're seeing there is that the farther removed you are from your child genetically, the less willing you are to give them resources. Hmm. So that's I mean, the that makes sense. inverse of that situation. Right, yeah. I mean, that makes from... That makes sense from a connection level, right? That's not to say there's anomalies out there where I have a step-parent who cares more than my own biological parent, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Outside of whatever cultural or personal upbringing you have. That, to me, makes sense just from a, you know, inbuilt connection standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. You've heard people who've had kids now or whoever and say, when you become a parent, it just changes your whole worldview, right? It just blows everything, just... I mean, I can't speak (laughs) for myself either, right? Yeah, (laughs) not yet. (laughs) Thank God. Um, But just, like, from a connection with my own dad or whatever, right? They they do anything, (laughs) more or less. (laughs) And it's such a weird... It's so weird how, like, to think that our culture is still built around biology, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the switches switches that play out are just just large-scale biology. Yeah. You know? (laughs) And I was listening to, like, was it... It might have been, like, Eric Weinstein... Brilliant. I really respect yeah. that man. By the way, the fact that he has a harmonica, it totally fits into... He kills in. it. He made, totally fits learn, in. he made me want to learn the harmonica. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it totally makes sense, though, because when you start thinking about, like, genius... This is a tangent. But when you start thinking about genius-level, like, intellects and things like that... It's not too surprising. They latch onto large-scale... They latch onto very specific things that balloon into large-scale phenomenon. Because if you can understand music... You understand the abstract and you can apply it to multiple things. Yes. Right. It's, I've, been, I've been seeing this in many people who are great thinkers and stuff, kind of going back to the memory expert guy. He, he quoted um, Josh Waitzkin, who's a... He was a chess prodigy. He was the guy searching for Bobby Fischer. Was the book or slash movie about his life. Mm-hmm. He was like a chess prodigy at like 12. He was like a world chess champion and stuff. Like genius stuff like crazy but he doesn't say he was a genius like he doesn't say he was like smart because of just being smart it was how he could learn and then he wound up becoming a tai chi push hands champion and as he was able to become a champion in one and like see the patterns in another he was able to like morph between the worlds of chess and tai chi and see patterns in both of them and apply them abstractly about across it's really fucking weird. And Tai Chi is like a martial arts, like, judo. So, in... Hold on. It's, it's one of the most fascinating books, if you ever wanted to listen to, is, is called Art of Learning. It's an amazingly fascinating book on learning. Like, like learning how to learn. Like, meta-learning. It is... I listened to it, and I was like, holy shit. Like, because the way he, like, is able to abstract these things is, is so... I won't. I don't want to say different because it's a learned skill, right? Like learning how to internalize things and connect backwards or to other domains is a thing we can all learn how to do, right? It's kind of like that idea that when people take a genetic class, they're like, "Where the fuck am I learning this? I'm never going to use that in my job," mm-hmm. right? That's 
that's you literally closing down doors for connections to be made to allow you to excel in your own field. That's the way I see it. Yeah. And that's the way I've always seen it, and I didn't realize what I was doing until now. So this <laughs> gets us back in subsets, or connects us back to the original point, which was the, Right, that's, that's what I was trying how, to do. <laughs> yeah, good. Good, good, good. So, of what, of how culture is a, a reflection of our genetic process. Yeah. Or the at least the elaboration of... Or a biological process, right, it, I guess. it builds on it, a biological process, but it's specifically Darwinianism, right? Yeah. So we have this Darwinian evolution that happens, and it's the, on the genetic level, right? It's this slow, conservative process, a selection of genes over multiple generations to find the most functional. It's It really is a... And not just on the individual level, but on the think of it, and this is the whole point of the selfish gene, is that you have to think of it at some point on the actual genetic level, that it's not just the the individual that is looking to survive. It is the gene that is looking to like survive. Like the gene specifically, right? Right. I mean, not to... But not to read the al The allegory, the analogy doesn't quite work because genes don't have a conscious yeah, right. will. However, if you can just grant this for the sake of communicating, yeah, it's this idea that you need to look at it at the genetic level in order to understand that these genes are trying to survive, that they... Right. What they're doing is directing our behavior so that the individual survives, so that the individual can perpetuate those genes. Yeah. Was this kind of like the... So this, this is my first question would be, is this kind of like pushing Darwin's survival of the fittest into a different domain, kind of? Yes, but we need to clarify um, what fittest means. Right, yeah. Because there's um, an unfortunate... That's, that's the next question I would have, is, is it seems like it's an over-interpretation to apply fittest... To be applied, because a lot of people I know have applied the selfish gene to business. I forget the name. The, forget the company that took this to the extreme, but it's like one of the famous case studies of how this get got applied. And I can't remember what company off the well, top of my head. You can Google it for sure. I don't. I don't know the company you're talking about. I forget who it was. There's like one. What C- they do? There's like a CEO who read it and like basically ran his entire company off of this. Did it work? For a time. The fall part. Yeah. That's not surprising. Okay. <laughs> no, part of the reason that I can't that's, remember not, that that's not surprising is because people don't understand what fittest means. They make this assumption that what fittest is is the ability to just survive in some sense. That it's this brute force yeah, mentality. Yeah, exactly. Like the hammering the nail kind of thing. It is a, it is a forceful interjection of oneself onto the world. And yeah. that's what it is. And it's the toughest are the ones that make it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Wrong. You're fucking wrong. All right? That's an oversimplification, We already right? talked about altruism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and why altruism would evolve. And then why altruism actually makes you fit. Yeah. Right? That self-sacrifice, there's multiple levels. I should, I digress. There are multiple levels of genetic selection. Mm-hmm. Of Darwinian selection. There's the genetic the gene, the selfish gene, there's the individual, there's the group selection. I think this is E.L. Wilson that did group selection, if I remember correctly. And that there's, that those levels operate in different ways. So you could say that the, should you be able to operate within the group? Or how about this? Should the group operate in a way that is that allows for the individuals within that group to survive then the genes within those individuals are more likely to survive. Oh. Right? So you end up evolving genes that, per- that perpetuate behavior in the individual that makes the group survive. Right. Okay? So this idea that Darwinian evolution is just a selfish process. Yeah, like and I'm the one who should survive over you because I'm stronger or sharper teeth or... Whatever, whatever the fuck it was. You're more of an asshole. Right, whatever. yeah. <laughs> whatever. That, or I'm more aggressive than whoever. I think that a lot of the times it's used in order to... That you take that definition and use it to justify... Self-perpetuating. Your, you use it to justify your yeah. selfish actions. And you say that I'm just trying to survive. I'm the most fit. Yeah, and right. That's, and that therefore I'm allowed to do these things. I'm allowed to be an asshole and better than you. Right. Basically. And, and I'm better than you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Go fuck yourself. Right. If it you removes humility from the equation. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's ridiculous. And it's not true. It's not even evolution. Ever, 
Jesus. <laughs> Evolutionarily accurate. Right. It's not even true. So that needs to be clarified as soon as you talk about these things. Now, yeah, if we want to talk about the culture. Yeah, I, see, I feel like there's a connection in how culture arises through these interactions then, right? Because it's like then culture is, is a, a byproduct of... Um, how would you interpret or express this? It was like be a byproduct of basically calculus level populations. <laughs> like as you scale things up, you know, to larger and larger scales, then you start enveloping an entire, you know, baseline of what, how the group operates, right? Mm -hmm. You know, once you get beyond the whatever number of people you can have meaningful con connection with, right? Right, so we get past our Dunbar's number. Yeah, that, that was... I lost the term. Let me see if I understand. So we get past Dunbar's number, and then things start seem as if they would fall apart. Exactly. Okay. So I think this is where the mimetic level takes over. Because you can have no physiological capacity to track Everybody. your social relationships, <laughs> yes. right? And yet, you're able to relate to them. Yes. Okay, so for those that don't know, Dunbar's number is basically a measurable number of so uh, social relationships that you can track. Yes. It's 150 in humans. Yeah, basically. on average it's 150. There's a whole bunch of science that says it changes yeah. and shifts. Whatever. And it's correlated with the size of your neocortex. Okay? Oh, interesting. I think it's actually, it might even be prefrontal cortex. Yeah. So basically what that means is that your central executive, the thing that is able to order and manage and whatever your life, is also tracking the the intricacies of your social relationships. Oh, really? And the greater capacity of that system to do so mm -hmm. increases the number of people you can take track you can keep track of. Weird. So if you do this in other species, basically the the bigger the front prefrontal cortex, the bigger Dunbar's number is. And all Dunbar's number is is the number of people you can keep track of, basically. Like having a personal connection with, right? Right. Would before be the best, they, before would be the most simplest terms of that. Yeah, basically. You just figure people outside of it. Like the smallest, there's, there's spheres of influence of yeah. those people. So like five, I think, is the number for your closest yes. friends. I was going to okay. say the layers of that. <laughs> right. Okay, so Dunbar's number, outside of that number... You can no longer track who Everything. you're close to. And yeah. the reason for that is because you just don't have the processing power, right? This is a computer yeah. that no longer has the memory storage in order to save the people yes. outside of the, all of the other relationships you've already taken right. to the hard drive, <laughs> right? So what happens is the mimetic level allows for you to relate to those people even though you haven't saved them in your yes. hard drive. So you say, oh, we have something in common, right? right. So we have beliefs in common, mm -hmm. and we have religion in common. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to wrap it back in, right? Christianity united Europe. Yes, very much so. <laughs> that's the point. Right, I mean, you look at the Eastern cultures, right, with Buddhism or um, mm -hmm. what's, in, what's in China? Was that Buddhism too? Uh, Buddhism, Taoists. Yeah. Buddhism is really big. Yeah. So, like, and just in general, like, all of that religion, it gives, to me, what it's then is it gives you a baseline to say, okay, these people have similar beliefs to me or as me, right? Because then you get cultural symbology that goes along with, you know, when you walk down the street, you can see, okay, everyone's dressed like me or they have cultural symbology that resonates with me because it's, I think a part of it too is like sure like it has a shared cultural thing right mm -hmm. but when you see someone else have that it's like oh I know what that represents to me so therefore that person is not evil yeah right you, you or a, I'm not going to attack that person the, and, <laughs> and it's interesting too because it actually I think the mimetic level ends up trumping the genetic level right so yes yeah, I can have barely any genetic Hypothetically, right? We're right. Speaking <laughs> I get a barely any genetic relations with a black person. Yes. Okay? But they're a Baptist and I'm a Baptist. Yeah. And they right? happen to like wear a cross or something around their neck right. or whatever. And what that allows you <laughs> to do is to select for them, 
Yeah. To act in a group selection mechanism, right? That you're trying to allow for their survival, mm-hmm. even though you actually don't have any genetic makeup. Right. It's similar. You're not even close to each other. But you have mimetic and makeup. I'm putting makeup. close in parentheses here. Right, right, right. <laughs> you have mimetic makeup. Yes. I mean, that kind of makes sense, too, what people are doing with um, kind of these... these um, thought bubbles or, like, cultural bubbles within their own communities now with, like, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. right? You, you pick a thing, right? Then this becomes your community, right. you know? Right. <laughs> I think that's what these weird internet communities are. And I think that right? is, a, is a form of community, is a community. Based on ideology or right. a thing. I've actually thought in the past, and I'm not so sure this is true, but that people might select friends based on their genetic similarity. And, and the reason is, so let's say you have genes right. that produce a certain temperament. Yes. And that, that temperament is close enough to your own that you can get along. Right. Right, because if you had opposite temperaments, like one person's an asshole and one person's really nice, and you just can't fucking get along. Right. Right, then, then you don't actually have the genes, close enough of genes, in order to have a desire to help them perpetuate their own. Right. So I almost wonder if we select friends based on a certain level of right. overlap of genes. Well, here's, like, that totally, we've talked about this theory before, yeah, but yeah. it's like our friend group, right? When we look at it surface level, right, temperamental, things like that, it's like, why the fuck are we friends, kind of? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. the core group of us, we've all been friends for so long now, it's like, you know, when people from the outside look in, they're like, that doesn't make any like, that's sense. That's a pretty div- genuinely diverse Genuinely diverse group of people, right? And then it's like, hold on. There's something going on here. Because, you know, because of this podcast, I've been able to talk to people, and all of a sudden I'm like, there's a lot more going on at play from, like, like an intellectual, like, ideology standpoint mm-hmm. than I would have ever guessed. You know, it's like that can kind of like the Dunbar's number thing yeah. enveloping outward, right? So the, the one I would say the most that surprised me or, like, showed me this theory in action, so to speak, right. is Johnny. Because he was never, we didn't know him prior mm-hmm. to this. And all of a sudden, I have a conversation with him via the podcast, and I'm right. like, holy shit. It's like, he's he just fits right in. It's just, you know, the amalgamation. just And that's not so, su- <laughs> and that's not so surprising, right? No, it didn't, it didn't feel surprising. It was just shocking that it just fit so well. We were friends, <laughs> okay, right? So we were friends with his wife before yes. we knew him. And it doesn't surprise me at all. It absolutely fits no. into my theory, right? Yeah, it does. That she would have a certain level of genetic relatedness just enough to both get along with us and with her husband. Yes. And, and so and fits. so therefore she got a husband. Yeah. That was similar enough to her that she well, came I mean, along it's with. It's like six cents too, like where people like who are your closest friends kind of have a sixth sense or like, I don't know, man, like like when you get like a new girlfriend or something mm-hmm. and they have a sixth sense about stuff and they're like I don't know, man, something seems a little off, and you're just like, I don't know, man, you just gotta get to know her, right? And then six months down the road, yeah, they're broken up, right? Stuff like that. People kind of, the people who are disconnected a little bit or whatever, they have like a, a sixth sense of something just doesn't feel right. Right. You know? And, and, For whatever reason. I can't, and I almost wonder if that is like spooky a, level And now stuff. we're gonna get into a little bit of woo-woo. Right? A little bit of woo-woo. Not, it's not, it's still scientifically backed, but I'm gonna take a leap, okay? Yeah. So hey, let's just stretch the boundaries. We've been we're three shots of tequila in, right? Three shots, two beers. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so the point that I'm going to try to make is that there are certain mechanisms that work that we are completely unconscious of. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in this case, it could be that the person that that gets a gut feeling that those two are going to break up right. are actually picking up on signals that they are unconscious of. Like the in- okay. interpersonal, like subtle things you don't notice? The things you're completely unaware of. Right. You have no fucking idea. Okay, so... Or unintentional, rather, I guess. Is... Right, so... I'm not making a case for that specifically. I'm making a case for that possibility. Right, yeah. Okay, so if you... This is such a great study. If you track men's tips for female strippers okay. over a long period of time. They increase when the women are in their most fertile period right before ovulation. What the fuck? Yeah. That's spooky. So it's, <laughs> as, so it's as if... Now, this maybe it's a coincidence. 
Right. Kind of think that's bullshit. But <laughs> no, to me, it seems like a pheromone thing. Is wouldn't be like if my first you, guess. Right. If you <laughs> fucking track the tips of men for strippers, it increases when they're at their most fertile period. So it's as if, though they couldn't tell you consciously, it's as if they are aware of when they're most likely to successfully reproduce. Right. So what this is is a case for the idea that you make actions, you do actions, you can you you pursue things that are of genetic consequence. You you are you are being played like a fucking fiddle by your genes. By and biology. You, and you have <laughs> no fucking conscious idea. Right. Well, it reminds me of that study they did for like freshmen in college mm-hmm. with how they texted Girlfriends and how oh, like yeah. the likelihood of them being together by the end of the semester. Or right. Whatever it was. So I can. You want me to explain? Yeah. That go one? ahead and explain. Yeah. So it. it's really brilliant. Um, Pennebaker, I think, did it in University of Austin. If I can remember who did the study, I'll try and say it. Yeah. Um, we can always link back in the studies if you want to. Right. Make the. Show I should notes. probably pull that one up for you. Yeah, but that anyway. one is a good one. To, to, yeah, it's good. It, Send me a message and we'll figure it out. Yeah. The podcast. We can um, we can edit it together and throw it up. Um. So, Pennebaker in Austin figured out a way to track the language that people use. Basic nouns, pronouns, um, adjectives, whatever. Mm-hmm. Send a structure, basically. And what they emotionally mean, right? So it's really oh. comprehensive. Like, the the amount of... Wow, so they did a lot of, like, oh, dude, analytical dude. analyzing of how Jesus, you structure the, everything. The amount they, of work that they put in this is unfucking that's believable. That's cool. Because <laughs> they, they were willing to go so far as to take every single word they can think of and put into a... Program that tracks their emotional, the connotation, Whoa. the emotional meaning behind the word, right? So that's neat. you say that's gross, right? That's a disgust emotion, right? Perfect. We track oh, it. Oh, okay. That. Matching emotions with how you uh-huh. say, right? So things. what that word that you're saying actually means on an emotional level, not yeah. just the, not just some surface level semantics, right. but these the real semantics, what's beneath the thing, the meaning of the thing, okay, and. What they did is they took a bunch of freshman um, couples, which are in college, yeah, which are notoriously, notoriously fickle, volatile, right? and yeah. <laughs> those relationships are almost definitely gonna end, right? Right. You're 18 years old. You, know you don't know what the fuck, what you're, the fuck doing. you're doing. There's a lot of alcohol. You're, there's a bunch of people you never met before. You're like, oh damn, my high Hormones school girlfriend. Are still kind of crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> All everything you could ever want to ruin a relationship is Woo! in the freshman year of college. And they tracked these couples and tracked all of their texting. Mm-hmm. And what they did was use their program that they developed to track the types of words they were using. And then could use those types of words to predict the likelihood of the relationship lasting beyond that year. Yeah. Okay. And they did it with great accuracy. Why? Okay. Damn. Because what ended up happening, the thing that they used as the predictor for the likelihood of their the relationship surviving was the the similarity the growing similarity of the words they were using so if they were using these types of words or that types of words yeah they matched each other they slowly oh they became harmonized they harmonized they harmonized that they started to match each other's language over a slow period of time weird and what that is is that's finding the connection Right. What it, what it meant to me, what I, you know, being an electrical engineer or whatever, is I, I think I picture two like sine waves and they're like slightly out of sync, and all of a sudden, as time progresses, they're like, they just I lock picture in. music. I picture right, music. Right, yeah. Music is a good way of describing it too, where you just slowly, it's like this the notes what's are off. so key. brilliant. They're dancing. Oh. They're dancing and it's like, verbally. And you don't know like what person's doing next, and all of a sudden, it just clicks. That's what it is. If. For anyone, for anyone at all that has been in a situation in which you've been in a dance where you almost don't have to think. Right. Well, it's like when you talk to someone for the first time, all of a sudden, like, I don't know, man, it just works. Right? That that idea when you say, oh, it just kind of works. You're on the same it's just, page. You just click at the same level, right? It's so cool. It's the intuitive cool. level of it, right? It's so cool. It's huh. a, You have this really interesting point where unconscious to yourself... You you're end on the same up, wavelength, right? People on, use that as the terminology. It's in the etymology. <laughs> it, it exists in the language. 
like remember like when you hear people who are like in love right when they're like well she just gets me dude I don't know man like how did you like when, people, when you wavelength. yeah right when you when you hear people like say how did you know when she was in love right or like how did you know when you fell in love with whoever like the day you were gonna marry her and then people say like I don't know man I just woke up one day and she just knew what I needed or you know what I mean like people just say like we just we're in sync right those like words aren't built into the culture right and why <laughs> is it built into the culture in part I'm like getting goosebumps thinking about it because language just... and this is something the fucking postmodernists don't recognize is that language isn't just syntax right it's not just that the order of words that communicate a certain thing well no that's because it's semantics media it's connected social media removes the context and the semantics and the, uh, no the, well not completely but like it it takes things out of context it's it at least dulls them right but Anyway, the postmodernists yeah, <laughs> are completely unwilling to recognize the fact that there's genuine semantics, that the words are actually trying to communicate something, yeah. a thing, a thing that exa- exists outside the subjective. Right. And that when we hit that wavelength, when two individuals hit that wavelength together, it's because they're able to recognize that intermediary meaning of the thing that they're trying to communicate. Yeah. So, and I mean, this is... That study, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, is a full-on fucking assault of the postmodern philosophy. It undermines it completely. Well, yeah, because like, it means that there's meaning behind things than just arbitrary structure. It's not. It's (laughs) not arbitrary. Language is not arbitrary. That's what I'm saying. That's what I mean. Like, because when you look through the postmodern lesson, there's always like a power structure that is the interpretive lens. Right. They think that all language is basically mediated by power. That all you're doing when you're speaking is using the language that you have in order to leverage yourself into a higher power position. Yeah. But they completely have to ignore the fact that you're actually trying to communicate something. Right. That when I'm talking to you right now, me and you, that I'm not trying to one-up you. No. That I'm not trying to find some position As far as as I'm concerned, we're I'm trying to talk to you. (laughs) Right. I'm trying to have... They don't even understand. It's like they can't even understand the purpose of a of a conversation. It's like how fucking socially inept do you have to be as a human being to not understand the fact that when you talk to someone, you're trying to fucking communicate. Right. Like you motherfuckers. Like Jesus. <laughs> like for me, the one big thing about going back to like a technological, like pulling back on the psychological, biological stuff, for me, the way I interpret language is from a technological standpoint. Okay, go ahead. Um, but basically, the way I see it is the the advent of language, right, is a technological leap in human evolution to the prior paradigm, right? So before that, there was maybe, you know, rudimentary language of clicks and whatever, right? Sim- simple things that you couldn't communicate as effectively. But then once you started making words and, al- you know, the, the advent of the alphabet, I guess, if we really went to the correct s- standpoint, is then that gives you a point at which you can start adding more detail and nuance into the structure, right? And then at that point, you start adding grammar and, you know, sentence structure and then the add-noun verb, that all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? So you start adding, you know, these technological complexities that allow you to give you more interpretive depth, right? <laughs> to sure. be able to interpret what the message that the person's conveying, right? Because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is you're trying to interpret the message from my brain and I'm trying to send that to you in a way that you can understand what I'm saying and inter- reinterpret it into your brain to be able to get my message at a hundred percent clarity, right? Which is never going to happen. But that's <laughs> that's okay. But it's okay. But I'm just saying is like that's it the idea. Well enough. That's the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but th- that's the problem that people start missing when they have different paradigms they're coming from, right? Right. As soon as you <laughs> here's here's a fundamental fucking <laughs> flaw in the postmodern ideology, right? is that they actually don't think that you can connect to the physical world. Because so then what are they? Nothing. It's rad- it, it leads <laughs> to radical subjectivism. Which is why oh. you have people that can say that my emotions are, the, are reality. So, is, is it, so, so I that's feel you, bad, therefore this is bad. So that's where people can say, I'm the, it's kind of saying I'm the only one that thinks this way, so therefore no one can understand me. Yeah, and I mean that's where it ties into intersectionality, right? That you have these, because there is no physical world that anyone's willing to communicate, you can actually, and you've thrown out the physical world in some sense as a a result, you end up with these different 
racial, social, sexual groups. Yeah, right. That exist that can't actually communicate to right. each other. Right, delineation, I guess you'd call right, it. Right, that all you can communicate to is your own experience and people who have the exact same experience as yourself. Okay. So the only people that have the exact same experience in their mind as yourself is people of the same group as you. If you're black, there's a black experience that every black person has. Right. And that therefore, then you can communicate to each other. But communicating outside of that group is null and void. It doesn't make any sense because the white experience is different than the black experience. But they have to... It's so stupid. You have to fucking ignore the fact that a physical world exists and you're trying to communicate what the physical okay. world is. You have to deny... Literally, the last 500 plus fucking years of right. science. You're so fucking inept. Well, it's unbelievable. Here's the thing. I have to piss. God damn One it. more thing before you go piss real quick. And then we can wrap this up because we got to go head to a party. Yeah, it's already almost an hour. But to, to wrap this up, the idea what you just said, if, if what the postmodernists say, where it's like, if the experience of one group means it only can exist in that group of people... Mm-hmm. And it becomes null and void as someone's removed from that group. The idea of this podcast could, could be exist. null and void. Period. You couldn't have podcasts. You couldn't have podcasts. You and couldn't. then you can't even explain it on a pragmatic level because you have people <laughs> like Joe Rogan who are willing to talk to every motherfucker under the sun, yes. right? And that the fact that it's been successful, how do you explain how something succeeds when it's contradictory, contradictory to reality? Yes, because because. In all reality, whoever is the host of that thing that says, "I will want to talk to you." They are not going to be able to be able to be part of your world because they don't they've never lived it, right? They can live in sections of your world, right? Like Rogan is a hunter. He's an MMA fighter, but he's not going to be everything you are. It's almost like <laughs> they don't believe in a standard biology that exists that you have a substrate <laughs> of emotion and that those emotions are universal across the entirety of the human species and that you can empathize with another human being in part because you have the same emotions. Right. <gasps> but ooh, that's fucking not even in the realm of their philosophy. Jesus. It's so fucking dumb. It's it blows my fucking mind that this is the this is the prevalent ideology in academia. I know. And it's like it seems how weird. fucking like, did you just shit your brains out? It's like, disjointed from reality. Jesus. What it winds up being. Like, how can you call yourself a fucking intellectual and at the same time be like, reality doesn't well, be- exist? Because we know what happens. It's because they're so so far removed from the applicative world. You know, because they're reading... Yeah, they're, they're so reading, off in the clouds. They're reading the theory. They're reading the the new study. They're reading the new, you know, the next prevailing whatever, right? But they're not testing those ideas in the real yeah, world. Yeah, they can't actually test them. Because they don't know how to. This is to, the gender right? studies. This is the women's studies. This is the god fucking name it, dude. There's even fat studies now where you just fat talk. Studies. Yeah, huh? Where you I've talk about people that are that are basically like fat shaming studies, like things like that. Right, like they're over, they're out of fucking shape, and that their fatness. The only reason that an, a single individual is fat is because, and I had a conversation with someone about this, is that the only reason. God. That someone is considered fat and unhealthy is because there's a normative definition of what is fat and or what is thin and healthy, and that they are only fat and unhealthy because we have this definition. That's right? stupid. So, so to put it in a simpler way, <laughs> you have the majority of people are kind of in shape and thin, right? And that's okay. Who are average body so, type, right? Right. So therefore, the non-average people are being oppressed by the this expectation for thinness. But that has to ignore the fact that if you're fat as fuck, that's unhealthy. Right. That's actually like I mean, you can take biological medical. markers yeah. and you can go to your fucking doctor and it you can be like, science period. Hey, you're going to fucking have heart problems. Yeah. Sorry. You're obese. That's a problem. Well, and, it, but <laughs> these are people, these are fucking people that are completely unwilling to recognize the fact that their actions, that the things that they aren't doing or are doing, right. eating or... Well, doesn't this go back uh, not, to the... Or not eating healthy or eating right or not yeah. exercising or, and eating too much or eating unhealthy foods is causing them to physical problems. Yeah. And they don't want to acknowledge the actual world, so they throw it all out. Doesn't this go back to the idea that people find a paradigm that fits their own current... Yeah, it's confirmation bias. Right. Exactly. To, to use the term. People... It's safe to find the things that already support your own habits and whatever right because to question your own beliefs is painful and difficult 
Yeah, but if you <laughs> right, listen, I'm, I absolutely agree, and that's absolutely true. And in part, it should be difficult. Right. right? Well, I mean, especially <laughs> if if the framework that you're using to operate in the world is functional. Yes. Then you throw it out at your own peril. Right. So if ever if all you were was a person who, and perhaps, listeners, or you have met people who are perfectly willing to stand on no beliefs whatsoever, no principles, and they're willing to flow with the wind, right? There's no respect for those individuals because you can't count on them. Well, they're wishy-washies. They're what they want to be, right? They're flaky. Yeah. They're <laughs> horrible to deal with. You never know where they stand or, like, if you can... Like, it's the person you, like, try to ask, and you're like, hey, man, can you help me out with this? And you're like, well, uh, I have a family, or I'm working, Like, they're willing to change their beliefs (laughs) as soon as the wind direction changes. Fuck. And those people are horrendous. So to the point of the postmodernists, in some senses, well, maybe not them, but at least... No, that's just more of just, like, people, like, temperamental, like, personal biases, I guess you'd call those. It's... It's, or people it's, who haven't found to a the strength to stand on. of of confirmation bias. Yeah, is that you? Is that there's actually a point to it, right? Yeah, is that if it works on the mimetic level, maybe you should hold on to it. That's fair. If it's functional, don't throw it away without caution. Which should be a lesson for Dawkins, right? The way. Yeah, <laughs> I think we've. We we hit we hit us we hit like a, a fucking speed boost in the middle of there somewhere. <laughs> I had this shit stored up for months. Courtesy of alcohol, we'll definitely probably record at least another one before you head back to yeah, Michigan. Let's do it. I got between week here, so yeah, we'll just schedule it in. But we we hit you guys with some hard science in this one, guys. So have fun with that. I, I might have to have Joe help with the intro on this one because to cover all the, <laughs> the topics that we just fucking covered. So there's another hour with. Joe Joukowsky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's, a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.